0: because I said so. If you are a parent in this room, I'm sure that that is a phrase that you have used. If you are a child, um, I am sure that it is a phrase that your parents used from you or, or for you and to you at some point in your life. And typically that phrase, because I said so, comes on the tail end of some kind of bickering, badgering, questioning of your child after you have given them, him or her, an instruction, and they want to know why. Why? And we as parents have the privilege and the responsibility... To discern when that why is an act of defiance, and because I am your authority and this is what I've instructed you to do, is the appropriate answer. And when that is out of, uh, instead, a question that is cur- out of a, a, a curious uh, position that's a reflection of the very gift that God has given to every single one of us. See, the truth of the matter is that God created us as thinking, feeling individuals. He gave us a world to explore, to understand, to attempt in some way, based on his grace, to unlock the mysteries of the workings of the universe that he has given to us. The truth of the matter is, every single one of us has a God-given curiosity in which we use, when used properly, is a tool that leads us deeper into an exploration and an adoration of God himself. Paul Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, which I'm working through right now, explains that we are, every single one of us, interpreters of our world. We are asking the question, what and why, of everything that happens in our lives. And as pastors, as believers in Jesus Christ, as parents, We should be those who champion the God-given gift inside of every single one of us that wants to and attempts to interpret and understand our experience and our existence. Unfortunately, many of us grew up either in a household or even in a church context in which that curiosity was just squelched. There are some staunch Christian traditions where you don't ask God why. You don't ask your Sunday school teachers why. The Bible says it. I believe it. Done. And we squash and we squelch the natural curiosity that God has placed in every single one of us and we end up actually creating believers who hold on by a thread that easily rips the minute that life gets difficult. And we want to ask why, but we've been told our entire lives, don't do that. Just believe. And so we have to ask the question this morning is that how God treats the curious? Is that how God treats the doubting? Is that how God treats those who disbelieve? The truth of the matter is, every single one of us have doubts, we have questions, we need answers. And God is a God who freely gives those answers, and it's actually a sign of His grace. And what we'll see in this passage of Scripture is that it's the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, that draws near to the doubting and dispels all of our disbelief. It's an act of God's grace that He draws near to us in our doubts to just dispel all of our disbelief. Look with me, if you will, in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. John writes, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are the giver of life. We thank you that you are the God of all grace. You show mercy and you move towards the difficult people. Lord Jesus, you were often found among those that society would cast out, those that were struggling, those that were sinful. I thank you that you draw near to us. You do not run from our doubts. You do not squelch our questions. But you are a God who invites us to test you. And you prove yourself again and again to be faithful through everything. So I pray that this morning you would prove yourself faithful. Show us the beauty of the crucified, risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen and amen. As I've said, this is the final sermon in the series that we've titled The Witnesses where we have heard the eyewitness accounts of first, the death of Jesus Christ. We spent time looking at John's account of the crucifixion of Christ and we learned that John wants us to understand Jesus really did die. Right? And then we, on Easter Sunday morning, we uh, spent time under, in, in John's Gospel as well, John 19, hearing the testimony of Mary Magdalene, the very first, to See Jesus Christ in his resurrected state. And we saw that in each one of these encounters of his resurrection, Jesus transforms not merely the circumstances around the person, but really, truthfully, he transforms the individual inside the circumstance. He takes Mary, who is there at the grave grieving for the loss of the one that she loved so much, and he replaces her grief with an overwhelming joy. Right? And then we met the two who were despondent and in reality had kind of seemingly checked out. They were hopeless and were leaving Jerusalem where it's the hub of where everything is happening. And Christ in his grace and his mercy pursues them, instructs them and reveals himself to them. And all of their hope, their hopelessness is just replaced again with joy and a hope that defies explanation. Then... Last week, we looked at the disciples, locked in the upper room because of their fear. Fear of the Jews, fear of their failure in the face of Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes, and in place of their fear, he speaks his peace. And he encourages them in that moment. Now we see Thomas. And Jesus has a specific ministry to him. Now last week we talked about the ten, right? The ten that were in that upper room and we looked at Luke's account. And the reason we think we understand it to be the ten is because Judas has run for his life and is at this point most likely killed himself already. So he's no longer there. And John tells us specifically that on that first Sunday night when Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room, though there were more than the ten, because we know uh, Clop- or Cleopas and his companion were there after coming back from Emmaus and presumably others, but John wants us to know, and we don't know why, and we don't necessarily need to ask why, that in that initial resurrection appearance, Thomas was missing. And so this is... John's account of Thomas's coming to faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this passage of Scripture, in my Bible has three paragraphs, and that's a really great way to break down this passage of Scripture. In the first paragraph, verses 24 and 25, we see the doubt of a disciple. In our modern world, in our technological internet society, Something that rules and reigns and always has, right? But now in a new kind of way because of how quickly anyone can pull out their phone and get on Google and leave a review, bad reputations travel fast, right? Maybe you grew up in the world where, yeah, if you didn't like a particular restaurant or have great service or anything like that, you could tell your friends, but the impact of your negative opinion of that place was relatively small and isolated. But now that anybody can whip out a phone and they can rattle off a really bad review, that can have a massive impact, not only on a restaurant, but on a church as well. There have been multiple times where Sarah has had to say, no, you need to delete all of that that you just typed into your little Google thing about your negative experience because that's just not helpful, right? We all need to have that moment of second-guessing. And we need to stop and think, is this really what I need to post? Nevertheless, we know how difficult it is to overcome a bad reputation. And Thomas, unfortunately, in the last 2,000 years has ended up with a pretty bad reputation, right? He's known as what? Doubting Thomas. And I don't know when or where that came from, but it is meant in most oftentimes a pretty negative sense. Don't be a doubting Thomas. But the truth of the matter is, Thomas doesn't necessarily deserve that reputation because we saw last week that the other ten doubted in the exact same way. Jesus actually rebuked them two or three different times because of their hesitance to believe that he was really in front of them. Thomas here, though, is in the story of Thomas, John is giving that to us to teach us something. And part of it is when we truly understand who Thomas was. John introduces him again here as not only the twin, but one of the twelve, right? We know that there were hundreds of people that followed Jesus around. The Bible actually praises the role of the women in Jesus' ministry because they basically bankrolled the whole thing, okay? Okay. So they were present, and they were among the disciples, and they were there. But among the disciples, there were 12 that Jesus had handpicked and set apart, not near, merely as an inner circle, but specifically he had positioned them as leaders among the disciples. And even within the 12, there were the three, James and Peter and John. And even among the three, there was Peter that Jesus elevated to a place of prominence. So Thomas was not just some random individual who was following Jesus around. He was one of the 12 hand-picked leaders who God, or Jesus Christ was specifically teaching and training and discipling as an instrument to establish and lead the church when Jesus was gone. Also, we know in Scripture that he was a fiercely loyal disciple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention Thomas except by name, but in two other instances in John's Gospel, Thomas has something to say. In chapter 11, verse 16 as Jesus makes the decision that he is going to move towards Jerusalem because he has heard that Lazarus has died, and he's going to go and raise Lazarus from the dead, he's been talking this entire time about what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem, that he is going to be arrested and beaten and tried and crucified, and Thomas at some level kind of sort of understands that. And he's looking for this military Messiah who is going to reign and rule and Thomas says in John chapter eleven sixteen, 16, let us go with him that we can die with him. Thomas is fiercely loyal to the Lord. In John chapter 14, as Jesus begins to talk about his life after death, that he is going away to prepare us a place, and he says, you know the way. Thomas at that point, I don't think sheepishly, just kind of raises his hand and says, Jesus, that doesn't make any sense. We don't even know where you're going. How are we supposed to know the way? which then prompts what is probably one of, if not the most famous verse in the church, as Jesus responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God used Thomas in that moment as an instrument to provoke one of the greatest declarations and promises of Jesus Christ in all of the New Testament. So we see that Thomas is a willing follower of Jesus Christ. He's willing to go wherever Jesus goes and face whatever consequences may actually come. So the question is, why did Thomas doubt? And the answer is simple, because he wasn't there when the others got the proof. He wasn't in the room. We don't know why. We don't know where he was. We don't necessarily need to know that why or where he was because it's proof that God has created or orchestrated in his providence this encounter with thomas to teach us something and what god really wants to teach us in this particular reason is is specifically this doubting isn't uncommon even to the most devoted disciple he's one of the 12 he's not some random guy he's being groomed as a leader for the church he is deeply loyal to Jesus Christ. And yet he wasn't there to receive the proof that the other disciples had received. And there's nothing unreasonable about, uh, reasonable about it. And what all of the gospel writers want us to see is that the disciples were not individuals with some kind of superhuman faith. They had questions and they had doubts. They asked for proof that Jesus was really alive nor were they easily duped by some duplicate Jesus or some phantom. Instead, they were men and women just like us who had doubts and fears and questions too. And so wherever you are today, based on because of the circumstances of your life or based on just your own curiosity, if you have questions, if you have doubts, if there are truths in Christianity and in the Bible that you struggle to believe, you are not alone. And you're not isolated, abandoned, or silenced by God, but actually invited to voice those doubts, to come to one another, to encourage one another, That we can bring our questions and our curiosities, our fears and our failures before one another and before the Lord, before the Lord that we might receive His grace and before one another that we might bear each other's burdens. And so if you are harboring your fears or your doubts or your questions, then feel freed by this passage of Scripture to bring them to the Lord, to lay them at His feet, to ask the difficult question ask one another and open up to one another. Not to withdraw from one another anymore. Because the truth of the matter is, God is not going to abandon or withdraw, you because, withdraw from you because you have questions. Instead, what we see very next, in, very, in the very next verse is that God actually draws near to those who have doubts and questions. Because not only do we see the doubt of a disciple, we see the confirmation of the Christ. A week later... Eight days, the next Sunday, the disciples are together again. Now imagine for a second, everybody's probably in a position of a little bit of of disbelief and doubt, because there's a flurry of activity with the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on that first Easter. He's seen at the tomb. He goes and he gets the the two on the road to Emmaus. He has some type of private encounter with, uh, with Peter, and then he shows up in the room, and then there's a week of radio silence. And he's told them to wait. And so they're being faithful to diligently wait. But a day goes by, and two days go by, and five days go by, and seven days go by, and there's still no sign of Jesus. So you kind of got to think Thomas is maybe a little bit in a place where he thinks, you know what, maybe it really was just some mass grief-inspired hallucination. I can't get that word out. I'm not even going to try it again. (laughs) Hallucination. Thank you. My wife is, see, God, you know, God gives us these women to just lift us up. A hallucination. But a week later, Jesus comes in right there. They're waiting, and the doors are locked. And right into the midst of these disciples who are still afraid, stands Jesus, and he declares his peace. But again, in another picture of his marvelous grace, Jesus moves directly to Thomas. He's already dealt with the other ten, and he is on a mission to see Thomas. And the urgency of Christ's mission shows us the true danger of Thomas's disbelief. Thomas declares, unless fill in the blank, I will never believe. Never say never, folks. Because that, that obstinance, that, that place of saying, I will never believe, is a dangerous place to be. Because there are consequences to that hardened heart and disbelief. And it's more than just a physical death. It's an eternal separation from God. A refusal to believe the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the salvation that comes from Him is Dangerous. And Jesus knows it. And so because of his burden for this one that he loves, he pursues him in the midst of his doubt and his disbelief to prove the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He comes to him directly, and he communicates, he shows himself to him. And what John is wanting to communicate to us is an important truth that is essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Namely, John wants us to see in this encounter, this this encounter between Jesus and Thomas, that Jesus Christ is the crucified and risen Lord and Savior. Right? First thing that he wants to confirm for us is that Jesus really was crucified. Thomas wants to see proof, not just that there is a man walking around claiming to be Jesus, but it is the same Jesus who died in a very unique and specific way that he was crucified on the cross. And if it is in fact that Jesus, and not some fantasy, not some fable that has been invented by the disciples, not some mysterious twin that has been hiding in the background for some period of time, who has magically manifested himself as as this elaborate hoax, if it is truly the Jesus that he knows and loves, there will be evidence that it is him. There will be signs of the way that he died. Scars on his hands and his feet and in his side. Jesus' scars teach us something. If this were an elaborate fairy tale, if this was just a spiritual fable meant to teach us some moral lesson that the disciples cooked up in this upper room that they had been locked in for a week, how would they have described the risen Savior? I mean, think about it. When we are grieving the loss of someone that we love, how often does our conversation immediately go to something like, well, I have hope because I know that they're not in pain anymore. I have hope because all of their hurts are healed. All of their wounds are fixed. The someone who had been wheelchair-bound for decades is now running free. So if we were going to imagine a resurrected Savior Jesus Christ... How would we present him to the world? Perfect. With no evidence whatsoever that he ever suffered. And yet, how does Jesus come to every single one of us? With scars. The resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, who now sits at the right hand of the Father and rules over all of the universe, bears his scars. His scars wounds that were inflicted upon him for you and for me and that gives us hope first his scars are a constant sign that he died and in his death he accomplished our salvation his death was not in vain, but his death was a purpose. Was purposeful. It, he died in accordance with the Scripture, according to God's perfect plan. God's perfect plan was that you and I be saved. And essential to our salvation was the death of Jesus Christ. The scars that Jesus bears in heaven, even to this day, are a testimony to God's love and the guarantee of our salvation and forgiveness because Jesus really died. But beyond just that, Christ's wounds, his scars give us hope for the wounds that we are going to endure in this life. Because the reality is we live in a fallen world. A world in which we sin and in which we are sinned against. And so every single one of us bears the relational wounds of a fallen world where people have betrayed us, where people have hurt us, where people have harmed us, and where we have harmed others. And Dr. Diane Langberg, in her phenomenal book on suffering, has this to say about the scars of Jesus Christ. She says the message of the scars in the resurrected Christ is not that the resurrection takes away the suffering, but rather that the resurrection catches it up into God's glory. God has a purpose for our suffering, because God had a purpose for the suffering of his son. Suffering can oftentimes cause us to doubt the very goodness of God when we bear the pain of our sin and the sins that are committed against us, we can begin to question God's presence, God's goodness, God's truth. The scars of Jesus Christ are a testimony that there is purpose to our suffering and that they are in greater hands. Our lives are in greater hands than our own. And we can, in fact, trust him. Knowing that Jesus has suffered and died is a gift of God's grace and it dispels our doubts and our disbeliefs. But John isn't just interested in communicating that Jesus really died, that he was really crucified. He wants us to see he was the crucified and risen Lord. That this Jesus was really raised from the dead. Thomas, like any sane human being to this point, questioned the reality of the resurrection from the dead. Why? Because dead means dead. He was dead for three days. Locked in a tomb, sealed and guarded. Dead means dead. They weren't fooled. They weren't foolish. And so Thomas doubted the reality of the resurrection. And I imagine, as I said earlier, that most of the others might be questioning their own sanity at this point because it's been eight days with no other appearances of Jesus Christ that we know about. But Jesus again comes to them in their doubts and in their fears, and in His grace, He invites them to investigate. Repeatedly, throughout the Gospel accounts and the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we find them actually physically touching and handling the person of Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene, on that morning at at the graveside, she falls at His feet and clings to them. You can't grab a hold of a ghost, folks. You can't cling to a fable or a fairy tale. That afternoon as he was pursuing those two on the road to Emmaus, he goes into the house, he picks up the bread and breaks it in front of them. As he comes back to the disciples, they are locked up in that upper room. He asks for a piece of broiled fish so that he can eat it in front of them. And now he comes to Thomas, who has declared, unless I touch him, unless I not only see his wounds, but feel his wounds, to know that they are real, I will never believe. Jesus comes in and says, bet you won't. Here they are. Touch them. Put your finger right in there. Here's my side. Stick, in it, stick your hand inside. Bet you won't. Jesus invites him to investigate his doubts. He doesn't scold him. He doesn't rebuke him. In his grace, he comes to him. He, in his absolute authority and in his confidence in who he is, nevertheless condescends to the doubts of this man and says, Here, test me. Here I am, touch me. Here I am, believe. Don't doubt anymore. But believe. The fact that Jesus is alive is the complement to the fact that he died. His death accomplishes our forgiveness, and that is absolutely 100% necessary, but so often we stop there we stop at god's mercy and we're content to be people who live lives receiving god's mercy and yet we fail to take advantage and avail ourselves of his grace the abundance of his blessings and the promise of that and the proof that god's grace is available to us every moment of every day is that jesus is really alive the death is defeated Paul sings out, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's gone. It's defeated. Why? Because Jesus is really alive. He came back from the grave, conquering it once and for all, and a testimony to the fact that life exists and is promised and is received in Jesus Christ, who overcame the grave and is the source of everlasting life. A well that will never run dry, and if we drink of him, we will never thirst again. And that life is not simply something that is ours on the other side of the finish line of this mortal existence. There are so many Christians who are waiting for eternal life, everlasting life, to come once they're dead. But Jesus said, I have come that you may have, present tense, life and have it to the fullest. But so many of us are living under this this cloud of guilt and shame where we're constantly crying out for God's mercy that we fail to receive God's grace and get up and walk as sons and daughters of God and heirs to the inheritance of all of the universe such that we don't have to be afraid of our sin, such that we don't have to be afraid of our weaknesses and our doubts and our failures. Instead, because Jesus is alive, we can live too. And we can enjoy the life that he has given to us. So many of us are walking around like big sourpusses all the time. Angry and bitter and mad and afraid. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, it is. But Jesus is alive. And he wins in the end. And as the book that I read says it's going to get worse before it gets better. So there's a part of me that says, let it get worse, because when it gets the worst, he's coming back. And my job right now is to be a faithful testimony to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to serve in the way that I was served, to love and be one who doesn't go out and fight against the powers of this world because the powers of this world have already been defeated in Jesus. I just get to be the herald of good news that says there is forgiveness in his death and there is life in his resurrection. Believe. I'm not a soldier in an army. I'm a minstrel with a, with a guitar. I'm a herald with a, a declaration. I'm an ambassador that represents the Lord. And the battle is already won because Jesus is alive. He is the crucified. He is the risen Lord. There's a couple, I think it was this past week, I was going through something. I just had had kind of a, a rough day. And uh, I got a phone call from a friend, a fellow pastor. said, hey, brother, I had you on my heart. Just wanted to talk with you. And, and it's amazing how often God will lay someone on my heart or God will lay me on someone's heart. And it never fails that he does so with a purpose. But immediately when he called me, we had a great conversation in which he was able to encourage me as a brother in Christ and remind me of my identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because even I, as your pastor, live as this gospel amnesiac where I forget who I am in Christ and I began hiding my identity and attempting to find my identity in something less than Jesus. And so I constantly need brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ who are going to minister God's grace to me over and over and over again to encourage me. And immediately when I hung up the phone, as encouraged as I was, what do you think my first question was? I went to Sarah and said, did you call Josh? Somebody sold me out. When someone seems to know something supernaturally, we immediately think that there's no possible way. Because we understand that we as human beings, we're finite. We are limited, not only to our location, we are limited to what we can know and understand and what we can do. Which is why... John is so careful to give us the words of Jesus when he comes to Thomas. And Jesus invites Thomas not only to test the fact that he is who he says he is and that he is really alive, but he does so with the exact words Thomas used a week prior. Why does that matter? Because Jesus wasn't there. Jesus wasn't there when Thomas gave that ultimatum. So how could Jesus know the exact words unless, A, someone told him, but there is no record whatsoever that Jesus came at any point in this, or B, unless he is omniscient and knows all things. And repeatedly throughout the Gospels, we see this supernatural knowledge of Jesus Christ when he seems to know the very desires, wants, and doubts inside a human's heart. It's proof that he is more than just a mere man. Because only God knows all things. Only God is omniscient. Which is why when Thomas sees Jesus and hears Jesus, He has no reason to touch Jesus. And he simply cries out, My Lord and my God. Now that is crucial. And it is the crown of all of the confessions in all of the Gospels. Because no faithful Jew who grew up every single morning reciting what is known as the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. No faithful Jew would ever kneel before a man and say, My God. This is not some blasphemous exclamation out into the universe of shock and awe. Instead, what this is, is a personal declaration of faith. Jesus standing before him was and is the incarnate God of the universe. And that revelation prompts Thomas to respond, not just with a theological statement that says you are the Lord and the God, but with a personal declaration of faith and entering into a personal relationship, you are my Lord and my God. Because Jesus isn't a theological concept for us to understand. It isn't a religious system of rituals that we are to obey. Jesus Christ is a person for us to know on a personal basis and to trust each and every moment of each and every day. So Jesus commands him, don't disbelieve. But believe, and Thomas yields not to a set of facts, not to this system of religious regulations, but instead to a relationship with the God who clothed Himself in flesh, and died in His place, and was raised to everlasting life, that Thomas might receive life too. And this life is what Jesus promises, and it's the last thing that we see in this passage of Scripture, is we see a blessing spoken over believers. Jesus asks him the question, do you believe because you've seen? Blessed are those who never see and yet still believe. And then John rounds out. I love John's writings because John doesn't bury the lead. John is the one who says, here, you want to know why I'm writing? This is why I'm writing. I have specifically chosen everything that I have put in this book so that you will believe. Don't disbelieve Believe. Believe what? Exactly what Thomas said. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the King who died to rescue us from our sin, from our doubts, from our fears, from our failures. And he is the God who gives us everlasting life. Right here and right now. And so Jesus says to you and to me, to the ones, I don't know about you, but sometimes for me it's really hard as I'm reading this passage of Scripture. There's an envy and a covetousness that swells up in my heart that says, man, I wish I had been there. These guys are so lucky that they got to walk and see and experience all of these things. Man, these missionaries all over the world that are coming back with testimonies of God doing amazing things, of healing the sick, of speaking in tongues, of declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ, of seeing demons cast out of individuals. Man, I am so envious. Those churches that have experienced miraculous turnarounds and growth and are reaching their community with a passion and a quote-unquote success that they had never had before, man, man, I want to see God do that. Man, I want to be a part of that. Man, I just wish that I could experience that too. And Jesus says to each and every one of us who long to experience that, congratulations. Congratulations to you who believe before you see. Who believe before you touch. Who believe because you've heard and because you've read. Blessed are you who don't walk into the world afraid to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you aren't prepared for the questions and the doubts and the fears. And because you're not giving over to that fear that wells up, even in my heart that says, I know this sounds really crazy. I'm talking about people coming back from the dead. And there's hope in that. And this person is dealing with the pain of not being able to feed their family. Facing death because of cancer. Of dealing with all of the scars and the trauma because they've been abused again and again and again by someone in power, whether it be a parent or a teacher or an employee or just the world around us because of its sin. And I'm here to talk about this story that's supposed to change their life. Yeah, because blessed are you who believe before you see and before you touch. Because God is the God who creates through the spoken word. And God is the God who recreates through the proclamation of the gospel. So we can be those who freely give it away. Again, and again, and again, and again. Faithful, because God is first faithful to us. Without fear of difficult questions, without fear of having doubts in ourselves, but to just step out in faith. Based on the reality that Jesus really died in our place, He was raised for a promise that we will receive everlasting life. So my question to you today is, do you have doubts? Do you have questions? Good. That means you're human. God is the one who has the answers. Christ is the one who has the power. The Holy Spirit is the one who is in you and is meant to lead you into all truth. Trust in them. and Turn to the Father. And if you're here this morning and you know what? You've allowed the hurts and the pains and the hang-ups of this world to drown out the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ for you, I invite you, just cry out to God. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. But if you're here this morning and you've never just simply trusted in Jesus, Hear the warning of this text that there is danger and disbelief. But God is not beyond coming to you to confirm and answer your questions. So I encourage you, just pray this simple prayer. God, I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to read your word. And I encourage you, read the Gospel of John. Read it. Why? Because John specifically says, I wrote these things so that you'll believe. So God, I'm going to read the Gospel of John and I'm going to read it prayerfully asking the question and asking you, would you make this real to me? Prove yourself to me. And watch what God does. But maybe you're here this morning and you don't need the proof. And you're ready to just simply cry out, God, I believe. Change me. Forgive me. And give me life. And I invite you to just simply pray that prayer to him today.